You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Stephen Kessler is a poet, translator, essayist, editor, and novelist. He's the author of eight books and chapbooks of original poetry, and his most recent collection of poems is Burning Daylight. His newest book is a novel titled The Mental Traveler. He's an editor and translator for The Sonnets by Jorge Luis Borges. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. We primarily think of Borges as a fiction writer in writes about libraries and infinity and mirrors, of, but that's not how he thought of himself, was it? Actually, he started out as a poet and regarded himself as a poet, I think, pretty much his entire life. Um, he, for some reason, of which there are various uh, speculations, um, stopped writing poetry or stopped publishing his poems in his early 30s, um, shortly after uh, uh, three, he published three poetry books in his 20s uh, and, and uh, a lot of essays. And then he started writing fiction in, in the 1930s. He was born in 1899, so in the early 30s, he was in his early 30s. Um, and through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, he wrote primarily uh, prose, uh, a lot of fictions for which he's very famous, but even more nonfiction. He wrote a ton of essays on many, many, many different subjects. He was very active as a, as a journalist in Buenos Aires, as a, as a polemicist in various uh, literary uh, movements and schools. There were, there were it was a very lively literary environment in uh, Buenos Aires uh, from the time Borges was coming of age as a writer. And then in the late 50s, when he started to go blind, he uh, turned back to poetry. And from about 1960 till his death in 1986, he published uh, primarily poetry, or he wrote primarily poetry. Um, now, a lot of these poems were, were sonnets, which is where this, this book comes from. Um, and he wrote sonnets, he said, uh, in large part because they were easy to remember. They were easy to compose in his head because uh, he couldn't write them down. Now, uh, one of the things that interested me about Boris was that he, he grew up in a place much like he wrote about in his, in his fictions. He grew up in a library in his father's house, didn't he? For Borges, you know, he famously said his vision of paradise is a library. Uh, he apparently a lot of the happiest hours of his childhood were spent in his father's library, um, which very interestingly was composed largely of books in English because his father's mother was English. So Borges actually read English before he read Spanish. There's a very funny story about how the first time uh, he, he originally read Don Quixote in translation, and when, then when he read the original, he thought it sounded like a bad translation. Um, <laughs> but yes, he, he was, uh, you know, he was a very bookish child. He was, he was nearsighted. Um, he was sort of physically frail, and he was just a classic bookworm. Um, 
who who lived in his imagination and loved taking journeys in his imagination. So uh, yes, the library, and then of course later he was the director of the National Library of Argentina, and he um, uh, lived among among books in the library. He also worked in a branch library in Buenos Aires that was um, you know in sort of one of the one of the uh, funkier parts of town, and uh, he writes about that in various stories and and also in in his poems. He was interested in poetry from the beginning because he saw poetry as a way that language could transcend language and and become musical. And there was a very famous poem he heard that made him think that. Right. His his father, um, I'm not sure exactly how old he was. I think he was around maybe nine. His father, uh, who had uh, a literary side to him, I think he was a lawyer, um, but uh, the father was very, um, he, he loved uh, English literature very much, and he, he read to uh, his son, in this case, the, the, the experience that Borges identifies as awakening him to the magic of poetry and the magic of language was when he heard his father read Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. And from that point, he discovered in language this quality of music that he had never really understood before. And Borges himself, as a poet, has a fantastic ear. His, his, uh, his poetry is very, very musical. Um, and in any case, he discovered poetry, and he actually locates his, you know, the origin of his literary awakening in hearing Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. What was published first, poetry or prose? In for for Borges, yeah, um, he he started out writing poems and publishing poems, and he also wrote uh, a lot of essays um, in his twenties. Uh, he was in, there were all these um, uh, poetry wars going on in in Buenos Aires, uh, different uh, different schools, different you know polemics going back and forth, different manifestos of that you know in the twenties all over the world. Um, Poets were discovering uh, uh, the unconscious. They were discovering the modern world. That you know, changing technology. Film had an effect. Um, some uh, prose writers, like Joyce, who were writing uh, a new kind of uh, fiction, uh, were being read by poets all over the place. And so there were a lot of new movements in poetry. Um, really attempting to, it was, it was the birth of modernism, uh, essentially. I mean, in a generic way, it was modernism uh, starting in the early 20th century. And in the, and in the 20s, um, in Buenos Aires specifically, uh, Borges was one of a, of a community of, of writers who were constantly arguing back and forth about, you know, where should poetry go and what should poetry do and, and uh, you know, how, how should we adapt to the modern world and, and all that kind of thing. So he was very active as an editor of, of uh, literary sections of newspapers and magazines, of starting, you know, little magazines and little, like, uh, broadside publications that they would put up in various places. And he wrote, um, he published his first book, I think he was 23 or 24, and it was a book of poems, and he published three books of poems in his 20s. No stories at all, no fiction, a lot of prose, but in the form of essays. And it was only in the, in the 30s and 40s when he really started to gear up as a, as a fiction writer. I love this, this scene of uh, Buenos Aires as, a, as a, 
a hotbed of poetry wars. And, and it's interesting, too. It sounds like uh, Borges was, uh, was more political than, than we might have thought. Well, he, uh, he came from a family that was very involved in Argentine politics. His, his, uh, his, both his grandparents and grandfathers on both sides were military men. His father was a uh, <clears throat> philosophical anarchist who, who uh, I think, as, as uh, Georgie, as he was called, as, as his primary teacher, at least in his very formative years, um, uh, imprinted on Borges this, this notion of the, the intellectual as a free thinker. So Borges was very critical of uh, totalitarian tyrants, um, uh, very in favor of you know open uh, debate and discussion. So he was he was political, but in a non-doctrinaire way. I mean, more as a political commentator than as a political activist. Um, but he he was very engaged in 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 the issues of his time and in the uh, in the the politics of his of his country. Uh, talk about the the arc of, of Borges' career as a poet because it's really fascinating. Well, as I said, he started uh, in the in the very early in his teens writing poetry. He uh, he was in in Geneva for several formative years of his adolescence. Um, and then he was in Spain for about a year with his family when he was about 19. Uh, he started in earnest writing poetry in Spain, uh, was uh, published there for the first time, and then uh, came back to Buenos Aires and, and became engaged in all these you know, literary arguments. Was, it, was he writing in English or, or in Spanish? No, he was writing in Spanish, although his first poems were um, in, in English and French. Really? Uh, yeah, he he spoke, or at least read English, French, German. I'm pretty sure, uh, and Spanish, and probably some Latin, because um, he had a classical education. Anyway, in the twenties, uh, he's engaged in all these poetry polemics and all these movements, uh, and it, it's funny because it it uh, you know if you're lucky when you're a young poet, you you might find yourself in a situation where there are a number of other young poets and everybody, you know, there's all kinds of rivalries going on, but there's also a lot of mutual inspiration and stimulation. And uh, that's what it sounds like was uh, Buenos Aires was like. Uh, and there was also a lot of, a lot of uh, intellectual information coming across from Europe as well. Argentina is, you know, famously South America's most Europeanized uh, country, um, and they pride themselves on that, of course. Uh, and, and I mean, it was really interesting to read when I was doing my research for this book that, um, you know, the Argentinians regarded the Spanish as like an inferior race, you know. There's, really? Uh, uh, it's, it's just very interesting. In, in, when you travel in Latin America, you, you learn from other Latin Americans. I mean, they can identify an Argentine in a second uh, by some sort of manner that they have, you know. But anyway, um, Borges, uh, throughout his 20s, was really very, very seriously engaged in, in poetry and trying to become, you know, the best poet he could be. And then, for reasons that are, you know, speculated upon but not completely clear, um, 
some say that he, because of a disappointment in love, he gave up poetry for a while or stopped publishing poetry. He, uh, he had uh, some health problems. But it, for one reason or another, he, he stopped publishing poems and he started writing fiction. And through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, he wrote this astonishing uh, uh, body of, of fiction that was completely um, unheard of before. I mean, the kinds of things he was doing in fiction were um, what would now be called postmodernist in the sense of making the reader very conscious of the artifice of the story. Metafiction. Metafiction. Bringing... bringing um, the actual uh, fictive um, element in the story to the forefront, at least some of the time, to remind the reader that this is an invented thing. Um, and his stories are also, um, I mean, some of them, you know, he was a great fan of detective fiction, so he loves a good mystery story, you know, or a good crime story, a good adventure story. Uh, there's a lot of military uh, themes and and narratives in his work, but um, I I would say primarily he's a philo philosopher. Um, he uses his stories to investigate eternal themes like like time and eternity and uh, uh, you know the the one of the, his favorite themes is the is how the dream is really just the flip side of reality, and it's hard to, and which goes back to the Taoists. I mean, it's, it's, are we, are, are we the reality, or is our dream the reality, and is the life that we think of as our waking life, is that really the dream? You know, he raises these kinds of questions, and um, in this, in this very witty and ironic way, this interesting thing about Borges, there's this completely cosmic mystical dimension to his vision mm -hmm. and yet there's also this very wry irony so he's always like playing very humorously with these huge and 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 uh very serious ideas so i think it, it makes his his uh his fiction really fun to read and mm -hmm. really and really is. really um I know my experience when I first read him back in the late 60s, he was one of the first authors I ever read who, who made me completely rethink my notion of reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are very few authors who do that. Um, but Borges was definitely one of them. And I think that's, that has to do with the philosophical dimension of his, of his writing. Hey, I think, too, his style, his prose style is so dry and straightforward and unadorned. <clears throat> it really... Um, it allows you to um, buy it. It's very, uh, no matter how fantastic the thing he's describing is, it's almost uh, journalistic in some ways. Well, it's interesting. He, he does have this dry, um, again, it's like a very deadpan kind of a style. Mm -hmm. I think that's what you're describing. Yes, yes. Um, but at the same time, if you talk to people who translated his prose, mm -hmm. and I have talked to several of them now through the course of this, um, They'll tell you that his style is really tricky to translate. Mm. Um, and one of the interesting things, if you're interested in, in questions of translation, um, is to compare the different versions, because there are many different translations of Borges' stories and, 
I mean, primarily the stories, but also the essays and various things, and, and the poetry as well. And you see, um, you know, just the, even the subtle variations in a sentence, or it's even more pronounced in, in lines of poetry, um, how, how, how broad a range of, of interpretations you can make of what looks on the surface in Spanish like a relatively simple and straightforward uh, statement or, or image or idea. Um, so I would say that there's more there than, than meets the eye, and a lot depends on who the translator is. Now, throughout his life, Borges thought of himself as a, as a poet. Um, talk, let, let's get back to, to he, he's, he, he's decided that he's going to finish writing fiction, and go back to poetry. Talk about the kind of poetry he chooses, because this is what you ended up working on a lot. He uh, Borges started out as a as a kind of a modernist poet. I mean, he he when he was very young, he adopted a lot of the trends of the time, which was to bring in a lot of mechanical imagery and you know twentieth century uh, uh, elements mm -hmm. that were identifiably modern. You know, mm -hmm. this was a big deal among a lot of young poets at that time. Then he, it, it dawned on him that he didn't have to try to be modern, you know, that he was modern anyway, just by virtue of living when he did. <laughs> and so he, he adopted a very, um, kind of a straightforward, lyrical, but, but very uh, direct kind of a style without a lot of surrealistic touches, which were very popular at the time. This is partly uh, came out of his uh, his uh, uh, love of Whitman. Whitman was one of his real heroes, and he he liked that sort of extended, not quite pro prosy, but but uh, that that projection of the of the of the line mm -hmm. across the page. And he um, translated Whitman. He translated Whitman. He trans he translated a number of uh, English language writers, uh, and he did uh, eventually translate Whitman. But then. Um, when he started to go blind, uh, it was a congenital condition inherited from his father, who had also gone blind. He realized he had to adjust his um, literary practice to accommodate the fact that he wasn't going to be able to write physically. Um, he would have to dictate his poems to an assistant. Sometimes it was his mother, sometimes it was one of his students, um, or uh, you know, somebody he was, he was uh, mentoring in some way. Um, so when he w started to go blind, he started to write again in, in a more classical, uh, formal verse. Now this was, in the longer poems, this was usually a, uh, a variation on, uh, what's called blank verse in English, which is a relatively stable, uh, iambic pentameter line without rhymes at the end um but it's it's a measure that like any like any formal structure makes it easier to to remember what you've composed if you're writing it in your head and the sonnet which is the book uh, is the is the form that uh i ended up working with in this in this book the sonnets the sonnet is of course um a classical form in many different languages uh, european languages it's 14 lines. It has uh, not one fixed rhyme pattern, but it has several different 
variations on on a pattern of rhyme that falls at the end of the line. And of course, rhymed poetry is much more easy to remember even than than uh, blank verse poetry. Um, so a lot of his poems, uh, the short shorter poems, are are sonnets, and. Uh, he developed his own um, approach to the sonnet. Rather than adopting the, the tr purely classical uh, Italian model, which is uh, started with Petrarch, um, mm -hmm. or the English model, which, which is connected with Shakespeare, and each of them has its own structure and its own you know, sort of style of argument and its own rhyme scheme, Borges just sort of synthesized those traditions, combined them with his own... Uh, his own predispositions as a as a poet, and and wrote his sonnets in in his own way. And some of them, you know, seem sort of Shakespearean, and some of them seem sort of Petrarchan, and others are not are more almost Whitmanic in the sense of their. Um, he's very fond of the catalog, you know, and some of his poems, even the sonnets, are like lists of things, or lists of things leading up to a kicker at the end. Uh, but but the sonnet for him was obviously a very congenial form, and and it was a way for him to, um, you know, to write a poem uh, pretty much any time on any theme. I mean, it, it's the thing that everybody says about formal poetry. The people who write formal poetry, they say, well, when I have this structure to work within, I always discover things that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise because I had to make it rhyme in certain places. And... Uh, I think that's true, but it's also true that uh, the the structure gives you a uh, it gives you an opportunity to to pour your thought or your impulse or your feeling into this pre-existing form. That that uh, I don't know. To me, it's it's in in my own uh, writing. Uh, I write in in free verse. Uh, but um, you know, I, I when I started writing, I I wrote in 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 formal verse because that seemed easier to me. And even now, I think because I've trained myself in a certain way. Um, I mean, you hand me a piece of paper and ask me to write a a poem uh, in you know quatrains or something, and I can just crank it out because it's just something that it, it comes naturally as a kind of exercise. Um, in in the case of Borges, I think that you know he used the sonnet maybe on those days when um, I don't know he felt like writing a poem but wasn't sure what to write about and and mm -hmm. thought up a topic uh, and just knocked out you know, fourteen rhymed lines. Um, in Spanish, there's a lot more rhymed words to to choose from. It's the the appeal of genre fiction. You, the limits make it easy. You know, you're writing a science fiction story. You know. You can set it in the future. You got a robot or something that makes makes the life that reduces the choices you can have to yeah, make. Yeah, yeah. There's certain conventions you have to observe. <clears throat> now, you are in this book. The sonnets is the complete sonnets of Boris that haven't many haven't been published. Talk about the publication history here and your own journey discovering these poems. I mean, this must had you read these all before? Oh no. Um I had read a number of them and I had translated a number of them because uh I was one of the translators on the uh, 1999 selected poems that uh that uh, Penguin had published then and on the centenary of Borges's birth. Uh, well, 
the way I came to this project was that Suzanne Jill Levine, who's a very eminent translator of Latin American fiction, was uh, commissioned by Penguin to uh, edit this series of five books that Penguin is bringing out, the first of which are the sonnets and poems of the night. And then there are three short books of, uh, of essays to follow. Uh, and so uh, Suzanne Jill Levine um, recruited the editors for the other. F she's, she's, she edited one book, uh, Borges on Writing, one of the books of essays. And then she sought out editors for the other books, and she called me up. We've been friends for, you know, 10, 15 years or so. And, and uh, she knew my, my uh, uh, translations from the previous Borges translations and some other translations. And she called me up, and she said, how would you like to edit the sonnets of Borges? And I, I was flabbergasted because, I, you know, I've certainly read Borges like most other literate people have, but I didn't consider myself a Borges scholar. And of course I said, well, you know, why don't you find a Borges scholar? And the reason that she didn't want a Borges scholar, a couple of reasons, it wasn't that she didn't want a Borges scholar, it was that she wanted a translator and she knew that she could rely on me to do readable translations. So uh, I reluctantly accepted with some humility uh, this this project and and also with a great deal of excitement because it's such a privilege to be able to translate Borges. Um, and then I went about uh, looking for a version of his, an edition of his complete uh, poetry uh, so that I could see what I was getting into because I really didn't know how many sonnets there were or anything. And uh, uh, Jill as she's known to her friends, um, sent me uh, copies of some uh, some of his sonnets that had not been published in his books of poetry that were published in these collections of his uh, of his uncollected work that came out after his death. So she scouted around and found basically, and there's three volumes of of uh, the books are called Textos Recobrados, um, you know, recovered recovered texts. Uh, and she pulled the sonnets out of there and said, okay, you find all the rest of them. And, and so I went through the collected poems, and I basically just found every sonnet in there. So the, the bulk of this book is from the collected poems taken from his published books. And then uh, there's a, an appendix or a, a section called Uncollected Sonnets, which has about, I don't know, eight or nine poems from from these these posthumously published books or book or poems that only appeared in magazines or something like that, and uh, finding these poems was uh, it, w it was a revelation because I I didn't realize how many sonnets he had written. There are almost uh, 140 sonnets, uh, or there are about 140, depending. There some of them are in two parts, and uh, he was a master of the form. Some of them are just exquisitely beautiful and, and moving. And the interesting thing to me was that th w was the intimacy of the tone of some of these poems. Some of them are in the voices of historical figures. Uh, some of them are, you know, homage to his military ancestors. Uh, there, you know, there's certain kind of, there's homage to various philosophers and, and, and writers. But a lot of them are really... Um, very personal, reflective meditations on things that, on themes that are are uh, 
very much a part of his uh, his fiction as well. The mirror, the labyrinth, you know, eternity, time, memory, oblivion, the garden. Uh, the, there are a lot of themes that keep coming up. The soldier is a big thing with him. Um, the the hoodlum is another is another character that he is fascinated with partly because of his own physical timidity you know he's fascinated with these like physically brave uh, violent even people so th i i discovered um i discovered that uh there was a lot more to borges than i suspected and some of these poems are just so touchingly personal in a way that you never see in his stories i mean he's really revealing himself in a way that i had never seen before, except in some of the other poems that I had translated back in the 90s. <clears throat> One of the things I think that's interesting uh, about these poems is, uh, well, there's there's a word you use, and, and he actually writes a poem about this being, Proteus, Protean. This is, there's a, such a, a wealth of a variety of poetry in here. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about uh, just... The, the the scope uh, of these poems and I think Protean in Proteus is a is a theme that's not often thought about in Borges but I think it's something that's pretty important he has two poems about Proteus uh, I mean he has a lot of poems coming out of Greek myth and mm -hmm. Proteus is of course the the shape shifting figure who can turn himself into any anything he wants to uh, and um, there is this aspect of Borges, uh, this this protean uh, dimension that is really fascinating because it's not just. I mean, it, it it works in several different ways within the poetry, within even the 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 form of the sonnet. I mean, these poems are all sonnets, and they they're all over the map in terms mm -hmm. of their themes, their ideas, their their moods. You know, it's it's very interesting that even within that fixed form, he can. He can be. He can play so many different kinds of instruments, and then you know there are his, his longer poems, um, and then there are the stories, and there are the essays. I mean, this guy, he he was an amazing writer. The interesting thing, I mean, a fascinating thing about him, which has been frequently observed, um, is that the only form. Well, I don't know if he wrote any plays, but the only f uh, form that non-dramatic form that he did not. Uh, attempt was was the novel. Um, he he has no novels at all. He 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 wrote a long sort of biographical book about a uh, uh, kind of a legendary uh, Argentinian uh, poet uh, named Evaristo Carriego, um, and which is a sort of a so uh, Borges. In spite of his mastery of all these different um, forms, he he never never wrote a novel. Although most of the Latin American novelists of uh, you know from about the fifties on um, consider him, in a way, the father, the the godfather of the of the Latin American novel, because Borges's own innovations in this in the story. Uh, seem to liberate uh, a lot of other writers from previous ideas of conventional fiction. So you see this vast range of inventiveness from, you know, from people like uh, Garcia Marquez and Vargas Llosa and, and Julio Cortázar up through um, like Roberto Bolaño, who's uh, one of the most uh, 
widely read uh, Latin American authors of the present day. Um, so although he, but he, uh, although he never wrote a novel, he, I mean, he had very funny things to say about the novel, you know, because uh, it's not as if he didn't read novels. I mean, mm -hmm. he, you know, read Cervantes and Joyce and many other uh, great, uh, uh, you know, Dostoevsky. Um, but uh, Borges, for one thing, said, um, well, you know, most, most novels have a lot of padding. You know, there's a lot of stuff in there that you don't really need. So, you know, why not just write a, a, shorter, a shorter version of the story? And one of the funniest things he ever said about a novel, which, which, is, which really explains the concept behind a lot of his stories, he says, why go to the trouble of writing a novel when you can, like, summarize the novel in an essay about an imaginary novel and, and basically write a shorter version of the novel that you didn't have to write and then write an essay about it. Um, so so uh, the, the, his, his, his notions of this, you know, literature as this sort of hall of mirrors is, is very fascinating. But within, even within his poetry and within the form of the sonnet in this book, there are, there are a vast range of moods and styles, everything from very tender love poems to, uh, you know, homages to, to writers he admires, to um, little dramatic monologues in the, in the voice of, say, a, a Spanish conquistador or, a, or a, an, the, an inquisitor. There's a great uh, sonnet about an executioner and, you know, speaking from beyond the grave. Could you read it? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. It's called The, uh, the, it's called the Inquisitor. There's a wonderful one uh, about uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. <clears throat> that was positively Lovecraftian in its evocation of an uncaring cosmos. Okay, let me read uh, The Inquisitor first, and if you want, I can read Edgar Allan Poe also. And could you read the Spanish translation, the Spanish as well? Well, I can give it a shot. Um, uh, Let's hear the English first, though. Okay. The Inquisitor. I could have been a martyr. I was a scourge. I purified other men's souls with fire. Then, to save my own, I turned to prayer, the hair shirt, wailing, tears, and the yoke. In the autos da fe, I saw what my tongue had put to death. I saw the righteous pyres blazing and the tortured flesh, the agony, the moaning, and the stench. I've died now. I've forgotten those who screamed. But I know this vile feeling of remorse is a crime I'm adding to my other crime, and that they'll both be swept clean by the wind of time, which will endure longer than sin and than contrition. I have wasted them. Wow. <laughs> that is, <laughs> that's fantastic. El Inquisidor. Pude haber sido un mártir, fui un verdugo. Purifiqué las almas con el fuego. Para salvar la mía, busqué el ruego, el silicio, las lágrimas y el yugo. En los autos de fe vi lo que había sentenciado mi lengua, las piadosas hogueras y las carnes dolorosas, el hedor, el clamor y la agonía. He muerto. He olvidado a los que gimen, pero sé que este vil remordimiento es un crimen que sumo al otro crimen, y que a los dos ha de arrastrar el, el viento del tiempo, 
que es más largo que el pecado y que la contrición. Los he gastado. One of the things that interested me about this book was the decision to publish the Spanish uh, on a facing page because presumably most of your readers are English. But I think seeing the Spanish, even if you don't understand it, really gives you a sense of some of the music of the language that he's working with. Well, that's I think that's true. But you also have to realize that a lot of people in this country speak and read Spanish. Um, mm -hmm. So as a publishing decision, um, which, I which it was uh, of the publisher, it wasn't our decision, although I am certainly in favor of publishing it bilingually, um, I think it increases the, the market for the book. Um, wow, I never even thought of that uh, aspect, yeah. Because it, it, uh, it, this is actually the first time all these poems have been, all these, the sonnets, just the sonnets alone, have been collected in one volume in English or Spanish. Mm -hmm. So some people who just want to read the Spanish can just buy it for the Spanish. Um, and, you know, there are not only a lot of people who are completely bilingual, um, there are a lot of people like me who learned Spanish in high school uh, who, who can read Spanish to one degree or another. And I think it's really interesting to um, read a text with the, the facing translation, even though, you know, the, if you're not fluent in the original language, you're going to, you know, depend upon the translation and want to read the translation as a poem unto itself, and you don't necessarily need the original there. But I think, and what I recommend in my introduction to the, to the readers who have any amount of Spanish is to, is to take a look at the originals and compare them with the translations, and you can see how uh, provisional any translation is because one of the the things you learn as a translator is that you know there is no tr definitive translation there is no perfect translation um there is no even you know correct translation there are, there are some translations that are better than others and some that work as poetry better than others but you can have two or three or t 10 or 20 versions of the same poem that will all be different even a short poem and it gives you a sense of the the, the richness of the original in, in this case, and also just of how each translator hears the original in a different way. Well, translation is not a science. It's an art. That's absolutely correct. <clears throat> One of the things that, well, I, I think you mentioned that the ideal uh, translator for Borges would be one of his own characters, which I think is pretty yeah. great idea, yeah. and, and something he would approve of. Yeah, he, he has a very famous story called Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, and it's a story about um, this, uh, this, this writer who gets it into his head that he wants to rewrite uh, Cervantes's masterpiece, Don Quixote, and he rewrites it um, word for word, the same as the original, uh, but it's a different book. Uh, and uh, some, you know, in, in the story, uh, some people even think that it's an improvement on the original. <laughs> uh, and this is, uh, this is very much, uh, among other things, a parable of translation, um, where you want, I mean, ideally, you want, the thing to be identical to the original, but that's impossible because the minute you start working in a different language, um, you are going to have a different work of literature. So um, yes, in a metaphysical way, that is the ideal translation. Uh, I also propose that 
this book in its ideal form would have an infinite number of pages which with every uh, poem translated by an infinite number of translators and that also is a very Borgesian ideal uh, idea uh, because he's you know his notion he he's constantly thinks of infinity and the you know the library of Babel is the is the 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 universal library the, the library that goes on forever and and contains everything ever ever written um, so these notions of of verbal uh, and literary infinity are a very good model for uh, the idea of a book like this. So, and of course, it's impossible to do that, so you have to settle for what, you know. No, it's not impossible. That's just what I was going <laughs> to say. <clears throat> Actually, the technology today, you could have what would essentially be an ebook that would be a subscription service that anytime a new translation of a Borges poem <clears throat> was added to the work, it would just be automatically uploaded to your ebook, and thus the collection of Borges poems would become as infinite as the number of translators well, as there are. And that's a very <laughs> Borgesian idea. I mean, Borges would definitely, I think, approve of that of that idea. Uh, because he understood. Borges famously said that um, even an original work is never definitive, because every time you come to it, you're a different person. And, you know, you know from your own reading that if you read the same book at two different times of your life, you get totally different things out of it. Uh, so, and of course, he also said that the pleasure, the great pleasure in reading is in rereading. Mm-hmm. Um So, yeah, there is an, there is an, an, an infinitude of, of, uh, of experience that you can find in, in the best literature. You know, I don't think you can find it in all literature. Um, it's like, I know my test of a really good movie or a movie I think is really good is going back to see it a second time and to see if it seems to get better. And then I know I was right the first time. And sometimes, you know, you are, you, you go back and there's less there than you thought mm-hmm. was originally. I think the same is true of, uh, of, of literary work sometimes. I've been speaking with Stephen Kessler. He's an editor and translator for the sonnets by Jorge Luis Borges. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.